Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell on him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Johnny. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's good to have you. If you're new, it's good to have you. If you're returning, it is also good to have you. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, one other thing to put on your radar, you might have heard this announcement last week or online, but this is our last registration required service. Pretty big. Pretty big. Pretty exciting. Well, it's about 50-50 in the room, but I'm just going to tell you on an administrative side, very exciting. Uh, so uh, next week, May 2nd, we will no longer be requiring registration to gather together to worship on a Sunday space. So all the other COVID safety protocols that are in place are still required. So it's still masks. It's still social distancing. We'll continue to keep distance in the rows. Uh, we're guessing that that'll probably be a slow trickle in um, as people get more and more comfortable, as people get more vaccinated. Uh, but all to say, next week, you do not have to register for Sunday service. So don't forget, just because we don't send you 100 emails during the week about service, service is still happening. I'm just, I know this has been a, this has been a difficult relationship for us to maintain, how many emails we send you and how many you ignore. But it's almost coming to an end as long as you don't forget that we're still doing church. Um, yep, great. Now that I've just thoroughly insulted everybody in the audience, let's keep going. Uh, we're in a series right now called Easter Tide. And Easter Tide is the name of the series, but more importantly, it is a season within the church calendar, the historic church calendar. And it's a moment for us to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that Easter Sunday is like a monumental moment in the life and history of the world. It changes everything. And Eastertide is about continuing to tell that story for days after, to celebrate it, to live into it, and to declare that we are a resurrection people. That this moment is more than a day, but it is an entire way of life. It shifts and reorients the cosmos around us, that everything is changed by the reality of the resurrection, and we now live in light of the reality. So Eastertide is about celebrating and declaring the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And one of the Bible's and the, the biblical author's favorite ways 
to talk about resurrection or the victory of resurrection is to use the language of freedom. In Galatians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul tells a little church that where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And in the passage that we just heard from that Rhea read to us on the screen, which is Colossians 1, right before the hymn that, that Rhea read, it says that God set us free through the Son. That's Colossians 1, 14. So freedom is this kind of like constant reverberating theme that runs throughout the story of the Bible, declaring the good news of the resurrection, that what has been accomplished, we have been freed. But that leads to an important question. Freed from what? To what? What is it exactly that the Apostle Paul is so excited about declaring that we have been freed from? And what does it mean that we are being freed to something? And Paul gives us an answer to that question, again, right after, right before verse 14 and verse 13. He says this, it's very beautiful, it's very succinct, and to be honest with you, it's very weird. Verse 13, for God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Just one more time, so you capture the full weirdness of Paul's language. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. What in the world is the domain of darkness? I've been wrestling with this all week, and I, this is just like a personal confession. I think the sermon that will follow from this moment is going to be weird mostly for me. I just want you to know that. It's a stretch for me, theologically, to describe what the domain of darkness is and to have a robust conversation about what does Paul consider us to be rescued from. It's something that is difficult for me to get my mind around. It's difficult for me to, like, wrestle through. But as I continue to engage this topic all week, like, it led to one place. And I think the thing that makes this, this topic the most difficult is this, that underneath the question of, for me, is what is the domain of darkness? It's a bigger question about evil and about darkness and about sin and about the nature of things in the universe. And maybe it's this bigger question, which is where does evil come from? Right, Paul uses this big language, the domain of darkness, and it's trying to encapsulate something, trying to capture a big sense of something. But what is it trying to capture? Where does Paul believe about evil? What does Paul believe evil is? Where does he believe that it comes from? What perpetuates it? What causes it in the world? And I think that answer to that question is a bit contested in our world today, in culture around us, but also in the church. I actually think that there's like two distinct beliefs about what evil is and where evil comes from in our world. On one side, I think we look at evil, maybe more traditional evangelicals, we look at evil and we say that evil is primarily an issue of human sinfulness. Evil is primarily an issue of human sinfulness. It is our hearts and minds are oriented away from God. We live in rebellion against God. And so then, in that sense, evil is primarily something here, something in me. 
And the evil that's enacted in the world and that operates in the world, it operates because of me, right? Because I do these things, because I'm driven towards something else, because my loves are disordered. Whatever language that we've used over the past, that we are bent away from God is maybe another way of saying it. That's one side of the debate, right? That human sinfulness is the cause of evil in the world. On the other side, though, of that debate seems like is a conversation about sinfulness or human evil or evil in the world as more of a conversation about systems. That if we really want to understand what is evil in the world, we really want to understand what darkness is, we really want to understand what causes evil in the world, then we're having a conversation about systems of injustice, systems of oppression, systems of power, systems that are historic and deeply rooted that transcend maybe this moment and perpetuate themselves outside of individual human decisions. They are bigger than that. They are systemic. The easiest place to see this conversation and the debate about this conversation is in our larger, broader cultural conversations around racism. I think on one side, you see it really clearly that racism is primarily the reality of bad actors. Bad apples in the world around us, and that's what accounts for actions of racism in the world around us. Or there is evil in our hearts, and that accounts for racism in the world around us. Or people are taught poorly, and in that individual education or miseducation, it results in racism in the world around us. So that's one side, and we see it all the time. I think even as we were watching the Derek Chauvin trial, you could see this conversation. Is Chauvin a bad apple, or is he in a system that perpetuates something bad? It's like drawn right down the middle. Is racism something that is in here, or is it something that is systemic, that is broader, that's built into the structures and cultures of our society? And I feel like that debate goes back and forth so much. I think, honestly, it's the thing I'm having probably the most amount of conversations about right now. Where does evil come from? What causes evil to exist in the world? How do we explain evil? Is it individual? Is it personal? Is it isolated? Is it in my heart? Or is it in the systems and the world around us? For some reason, I think also this conversation has, not only is it a debate, but it's been kind of divided along the traditional, like, liberal and conservative spectrum. So if you're more conservative, you tend to believe that human sinfulness is the cause and root of evil. If you're more liberal, you tend to believe that it's systems, histories, narratives perpetuating outside of individual humans. That's true politically, Republican and Democrat, but it also tends to divide the church. If you're like a liberal Christian, you believe in systems. If you're conservative Christians, you believe in individual sinfulness. Cannot tell you how many times I've been accused of just both. Can't count. And I think as we evaluate this debate, what is the domain of darkness? What causes evil? What perpetuates brokenness? What is the problem in the world around us? If we are stuck on a spectrum of conservative or liberal, individual or systemic, our imaginations are far too small to comprehend how the Bible describes evil. It is so much bigger than both of those things. But we perpetually live in a reduced understanding of evil. There's an American scholar named Andrew Del Blanco who wrote a book called The Death of Satan. 
And in it, he wrote this, which I think is a very powerful statement to summarize how we have this conversation. He wrote, a gulf is opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The Blanco is saying is like, we witness evil all the time. That's not the issue. We see it. It's playing out on our screens. We see it in our own lives. We experience it affect us. Like, we know it. We see it. We can name it all around us that evil is happening. Whether it's violence that we watch on TV or something we experience more personally. Like, we're not blind to the realities of evil around us, but, but we can't quite get our minds around why. And we have these political conversations and these theological conversations that always seem to move in circles redundantly, trying to get at the answer, and it always is the same over and over again. And we're like, where do we never get anywhere? Why do we never solve anything? And DeBlanco's like, because we don't have the intellectual resources for dealing with it. Because evil is bigger than we realize. The biblical authors have a much bigger understanding of the forces of darkness or the dominion of darkness than our modern culture does. And I mean this is true of both conservative Christians and liberal Christians, that I think the Bible offers us a much bigger picture than either of those camps give us. On the one side, the biblical writers affirm human sinfulness. In Colossians 1, 21, the passage that Rhea read for us, the end of that passage goes like this, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with God in your mind, which was shown by your evil actions. Mind can also be translated as disposition or attitudes. It kind of captures that sentiment that there is something about us that feels like it's bent somewhere, it's moving the wrong way, that, that, that we, we don't arc towards justice, actually. We arc kind of away from God. We want to rebel against God, that, There's something in us that is doing that. So the Bible affirms that. It has language for that. It's there. But at the same time, Paul would say there is more than that. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 2, Paul says this, using very similar language as this moment in Colossians 1. He says this, "'As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin.'" Sometimes the Bible likes to use that language of dead to describe it's like your will is crushed. It's like you can't want other things, right? Like you can't long for good because you don't know what good is. You're dead in your mind, right? So that's that personal disposition, individual thing. You are dead in your transgressions and sin in which you once lived. Now watch this. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So in that moment, Paul does something more sophisticated, more complicated, more layered than we often do when we talk about evil. Paul says there is something in us. There is something in us that can be bent away from goodness. But then he also says, and there is something in this world that we follow, a way of the world that we follow, a story of the world that we follow, a reality of the world that we follow. And then he goes on to say, and there's actually something else too. There is a spirit, the kingdom of the air. It's weird language. 
And this spirit, this supernatural, this thing is at work in those who are disobedient. Yes, there is an individual disposition, but there is a system and something else. And again, Paul does something similar to this later. The Bible repeatedly, I think, affirms that there are systems and kingdoms of evil. If you read the Old Testament, the prophets regularly speak against kingdoms. And if you read the book of Revelation, which we're actually going to start a series during the summer throughout the book of Revelation, the enemy is a kingdom. It's Babylon, Rome. Paul says something similar later in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is not reduced to one thing or another. Paul is like, there is systems at work here. There are authorities, there are rulers, there are structures, there are kingdoms of evil, and behind those things, there's something else. There are spiritual forces of evil at work. Now, if we put all of this together, we construct a much bigger understanding of evil in the world. It's not individuals versus systems. Instead, to use Paul's language, it is the dominion of darkness. It is a kingdom that lives in opposition to the kingdom of Jesus. I made this image just to present it together. You just take the different ways the scriptures talk about the dominion of darkness. It is comprised of spiritual forces, earthly systems, and hearts and minds. These forces are at work together, a kingdom in conflict with God's kingdom. This is where I feel like what I said at the beginning is a stretch for me. This is where it becomes a stretch for me. I don't really like talking about spiritual forces of darkness. <laughs> I am like, I am a, an object of criticism for Andrew Del Blanco's quote, that there is an intellectual gap between my ability to do with evil and what I see. Because I want to explain evil to these first two categories, hearts and minds and earthly systems. I want to reduce it to those things. And if we could understand all about systems, and if we could understand all about structures, and if we could understand all about what's happening in human hearts, then we could probably solve all the world's problems. Like, that's where I tend to go. The problem is, is I am repeatedly confronted in the story of Jesus with this other thing happening. Spiritual forces of darkness that are at work also. And we see this all throughout the Bible, not just in Paul's letters, but all throughout the scriptures. And one of my, the most maybe like powerful stories of this comes in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is led into the wilderness for his temptation. And when he's in the wilderness, he's having this conversation with someone, the adversary or an enemy. And right at the last temptation, it says, the adversary took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and said this to Jesus, all of this will I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. 
Now, I like that story because the implication is the adversary can do that. Because there are spiritual forces at work with kingdoms, at work with individual hearts, that they are in some kind of conversation influencing one another. And it's important for us to name this. What is the dominion of darkness? Because we cannot understand evil in our world if we do not talk about them fully together. It's like if we were to talk about World War II, and we always described World War II as though we went to war against German panzer tanks. You're like, that's sort of true. Germans had tanks. They had a lot of other things too, though. Planes and submarines and an economy that was built for war and anti-Semitism. Like, if you didn't talk about the full story of conflict in World War II and you only reduced it to one part of the conversation, you would not understand what was going on and they would not have won. There is a nation or a kingdom at war. And the same is true throughout the story of the Bible. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about that. So why does that matter for us? What is it important to name about this for us in terms of this other conversation we're having? A couple of reasons. First, we need to be able to name evil for what it is. Christians should have no issue seeing the complexity, the depth, and the size of evil in the world around us. And yet, for some reason, I, we seem the most reticent to call evil things evil in the world around us, and yet we should have the most sophisticated reason for doing so. We believe that it is in human hearts, that it is in systems, and that it is perpetuated by the spiritual forces around us. We have the most sophisticated understanding of what is broken in the world around us. That gives us the ability to name it for what it is. Why are we so frightened to do that or so hesitant to do that? It's like we're more afraid of being, of being accused of being political than we are of actually naming something for what it is. It is important to understand how the Bible talks about evil so that we can talk about evil the way the Bible does, that we can talk about it the way that Jesus does, that we can name it for what it is. We should not be trapped on a spectrum of conservative and liberal. We just know from reading the story that it is not that simple. It is greater than either spectrum want us to believe that it is. Knowing that evil is a dominion gives us a unique ability to name it for what it is. And I think what we get to do is that when culture names evil for something, we get to say yes and. So when there's a broader conversation around us that that evil is something that happens in someone's heart, we can say yes, and so much more. And when somebody wants to reduce it to say it is simply systems, we can say yes, that's totally true. You are close. You're a third of the way there. Yet it is so much more than that. There is healing that must happen. There is spiritual forces at work. There are systems to be deconstructed. That There is a kingdom-sized work that needs to be accomplished. Christians have the unique ability to look at evil and say, yes, and. To know that it is more than the world around us often names it. 
Second, the reason this matters for us is that we have been freed from the dominion of darkness. That's what began this whole conversation. What are we freed from? The dominion of darkness. And when Paul says that, that we have been freed from the dominion of darkness, Paul means all of those things that we have just named, the spiritual forces of evil, the systems in the world around us, and our individual hearts and minds that are oriented or bent away from God. Paul says you've been freed from all of those things. We have been rescued out of a false and rival kingdom, delivered from a mind that gives allegiance to a false king, delivered from systems that devour, and delivered from spiritual forces that seek to destroy. That's the gospel. It is that large. It is a coming kingdom, the accomplishment and the rescue of the whole world, the deliverance of us from a false kingdom and the coming of a new one. If we see it as anything smaller, we see less of it. We have been delivered to a new kingdom. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the defeat of the dominion of darkness, but we miss how big that is when we miss the dominion of darkness. And when we live on a spectrum, individual or systems, we also reduce the size of the gospel. We think that Jesus' work doesn't have to do with systems, but of course it does. It says the adversary has control of the kingdoms of the world. We should not be surprised when kingdoms operate poorly. Jesus has to overthrow those things. Can't have kingdoms of oppression in the kingdom of God. They have to be overthrown. Of course Jesus' work has to do with systems. Why do we believe the gospel is so small? And when we think that Jesus doesn't have to work with individuals, of course he does. We need healing. We need to be freed from captivity. We need new minds. We need new images of God. We need our whole hearts and our whole lives transformed by the work of the Spirit. Of course God works with individuals. Why do you have such a small view of the gospel? And the truth is, when we think it's either one of those alone, we have a small view of the gospel. Jesus is fighting against spiritual forces, evil that is at work in and behind this world. Don't reduce it. There is a conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness, but the good news is that it is a conflict destined for victory. I love the language of Colossians 1, 19 through 20, because the language talks about the victory is done. In verse 19 and 20, this is how Paul says it. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, he reconciled all things to himself through him. Whether things on earth or in heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. That is language that says accomplished. Now obviously, that's not always how the world feels. It doesn't always feel like it's accomplished. And I think maybe the best illustration of how do we make sense of that language there, the accomplished work of Jesus in the midst of our experience, is to continue to use that World War II metaphor that we've used. D-Day 
happens on June 1944. Allies invade Normandy. It's not the end of the war. But it does mark something significantly different because the war and V-Day will come May 8, 1945, less than a year later. As Christians, we live somewhere in between D-Day and V-Day. The victory is secure, but the reality of that news has not yet reached the whole world. And so because of that, this is the third reason this conversation matters, we are called to participate in the victory of Jesus. We are called and empowered to participate in the victory that Jesus has accomplished. In Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus is talking to Peter about his church. That's us. And he says this, I tell you, Peter, and I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of the underworld, or some translations use Hades or hell, won't be able to stand against it. The church is called to participate in the victory of Jesus over the dominion of darkness. This image is really good. Heather reminded me of it this week. That this image of the gates of hell not prevailing is an image of defense, not offense. That somebody is losing and somebody is winning in this conflict. Miss you, that's us. Jesus is accomplishing his victory over the dominion of darkness, and we are invited, called, empowered to join Jesus' fight against evil. I think so many of us actually feel that impulse, and we don't always know what to do with it. And sometimes, to be honest with you, that impulse gets like shot down by other Christians. We have this impulse. It's like, ah, oh, people's lives are hurting and I want to do something, or we see systems that are evil and perpetuating injustice, and it's like we don't always know what to do with those things. And I think the truth is, it is our job to engage because that's what it means to join Jesus' fight against evil. We see sin and hurt and pain in people's lives. We want to do something. That is right. We see injustice in the world around us. We want to do something. That is right. Because we have been called and empowered to participate in Jesus' fight. But here's the thing. What we fight matters. Because in our reduction of the gospel, sometimes we reduce the dominion, and sometimes when we reduce the dominion, we reduce who it is and what it is that we're fighting against. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 13, just to remind us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we understand what the dominion of darkness is, we know what it is we're truly empowered to fight. Don't fight flesh and blood. We don't fight humans. That's not the kind of war we wage. That also means that how we fight matters. Theologian Greg Boyd says it really well. For so long as we are under the deception of thinking, our real struggle is against flesh and blood, we will not be engaging in the true battle of fighting principalities and powers. If we think that's where the struggle is, we've actually 
our minds have not been totally freed from the dominion of darkness. We still think that our enemy is one another. That's how this war is waged. That's how this fight is waged. That's how this kingdom is advanced. That's not how it works. No, instead, we have been called to participate in the victory of Jesus like Jesus. And Jesus gives us a good moment of of contrasting his victory with how the spiritual forces of evil work. In John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came so that you could have life. Indeed, so you could have life to the fullest. We fight like Jesus, which is a fight that gives life. Not one that takes it. Not one that wages the war the same way the kingdoms of the world have always waged it. No, because we know how big this thing really is. We know it's really at play. And so we engage different. We engage the way that Jesus does. So, Missio, what if, what if we believed? I think it just takes a second to wrestle with, because I'm wrestling with it. I'm still coming to grips with it. I'm still trying to process what it means. But what if we believe that? I think it would enable us to see and name evil for what it is. We could lament deeper than we do when we see evil explode in the world around us, and we could celebrate more when we see God intervene and bring justice out of difficult painful and dark moments. We could both lament and celebrate more. And yet always knowing there's something else at play. So we could celebrate and we can lament and we could say yes and there's something else here. I think maybe most importantly, Missio, if we really believe this, we would know ourselves called into something more. That we have been called right here, right now, to participate in the victory of Jesus. The gates of Hades will not prevail. The systems that devour cannot stand. Human hearts that are diseased and broken and in pain will be healed. And spiritual forces will be cast out. So Jesus is like, come, join the fray. Can't lose. So we practice this, this kind of fight every single week when we come to the table. The table is this central practice at the heart of our gathering because it so demonstrates what the victory of Jesus is that we all get to sit at the table with Jesus despite all the things that we bring. But it also demonstrates how Jesus fights, that he gives himself to make space for others, that he absorbs hostility and violence and hate into himself, turns it on it so that evil devours itself and that we might have a space to belong. So that's what we practice every single week, a declaration of what the victory is and how the victory comes. So let me pray. And then when you practice that victory and know yourself called to participate. Let's pray. Jesus, I 
just confess that I have a small view of the gospel, the kingdom, your work, and the things that you've overthrown and healed me from. Jesus, I ask that you would just give us a deeper sense of what it is that you've done. A deeper sense of your victory, a deeper sense of your accomplishment, a deeper sense of what it is that you're calling us into. Would you expand our hearts and our minds to to just get it at a deeper level? Jesus, not so that we would be afraid or shamed or judged, but so that we would know how great your love is. How great your accomplishment is. And how great your hope is. That there is something bigger and better in you. Jesus, help us know that today. As we know it, would you then send us out of here to participate in it? To help others see.